Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. Today, we welcome James Hollinger, a founding member of the BladeLogic software engineering team. James has gone on to become one of the most respected and successful leaders within sales engineering globally. In this episode, we discover a winning mindset and a unique journey that brings technology and sales into harmony. This is his playbook. pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs, we discover the crucial role that the pre-sales organization played in what is regarded as the greatest success story in the history of software sales. When John McMahon reunited the team at BladeLogic, he had a clear vision to create a sales and pre-sales organization that was in absolute unison. The symbiotic and almost telepathic sales rhythm is the benchmark for best practice. The outcome is not only execution excellence, but a shift to a value mindset which transcends any shift in technology. The pre-sales team now take executive positions at some of the fastest, most disruptive technology companies in the world. What we discover is that John McMahon's vision has not only changed how we sell, it's changed what we sell. Welcome to Hunters and Unicorns, the pre-sales edition of the 33 CXOs. I'm Simon Kutis and I'm joined by my co-host Patrick Harrison. Great to be here. And it's an absolute honor to welcome James Hollinger. James, welcome to the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Welcome James, thanks a lot for joining us, really appreciate it. So James, um, you're currently VP of pre-sales engineering at Domino Data Labs. Um, I know it's obviously been a very, very illustrious career. Most of the time throughout your journey, you know, you've been very much, well, in the trenches with the, uh, with the kind of the, the 33 CXO playbook um, kind of sales leadership throughout your career. Um, but we are going to talk a little bit about what you're doing currently, but I actually want to go right to the beginning because you had quite an interesting entry um, into pre-sales and actually take us right to how you joined BladeLogic and uh, what it was like in the early days. Yeah, so BladeLogic, uh, well, prior to BladeLogic, uh, I was at a company called Breakaway Solutions. And Breakaway was a, uh, a company that was trying to get enterprises onto the internet. So this was back in, in <laughs> you know, the very, very early internet days. And so they were, um, you know, we were building internet applications and then we would actually host them for the companies as well. And I was part of the hosting division and uh, there was a, a core group who had been acquired in to be that hosting division. And some of the folks uh, that, that you're familiar with, like David Acheria, who's over doing uh, a CEO at MongoDB right now and, and others. And uh, what my role was in particular was I was building automation tools for the hosting division. So we had to move a lot of data around. We had to make sure systems were staying up and so on and so forth. So uh, I was an engineer building those tools. 
Um, of course, we all know what happened with the internet boom. Breakaway, you know, took off amazingly well, and uh, as a lot of companies did. And then, uh, unfortunately, with the uh, the internet bubble blowing up, uh, we went off after Breakaway Solutions to uh, form Blade Logic, and I joined early on as part of the very early engineering team with my skill set of building automation tools for operations and data centers. Uh, it made a lot of sense, and, and those were my friends that I'd come on board with uh, from prior companies, even prior to, uh, to Breakaway. Mm. And this is in the very early days of Blade Logic, right? Yeah, I mean, that was just in the, I mean, we didn't even really have a product. And so we just started designing and, and building a product uh, from the ground up at that time, yeah. So, so who was really driving that in terms of, you know, that, 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 those early days? Who had the vision? Who had the kind of, you know, just, just take, us, take us there. Yeah, so, so really, I mean, you know, obviously all of the folks who had come from Breakaway, we had, we'd been hosting a lot of um, pretty big applications. I mean, we were doing all the, the Java downloads for Sun and, and so on and so forth. And, and so there was a lot involved in automating all of the deployments and the management. Uh, and so all of the people who were involved in that spent many late nights, right, with servers that were going down and, and migrating data and doing all kinds of things to keep the systems up and running. So we saw the pain. We saw, you know, with the pain, of course, we saw the opportunity. And so from a vision perspective, I think everybody who, uh, who came out of that space and saw how difficult it was and how, you know, there needed to be a tool set and a new way of doing things really had that vision but then it was brought to fruition by um, uh, a couple a couple sides. There was the folks that came from Breakaway, and uh, then there was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Krauss who had written a uh, application called Network Shell. If if uh, you're familiar yeah. with that, and so that became that was an agent-based one-to-many management technology, and that became sort of the foundation. So I would say it was a combination of everybody who had come from the space, who had been, you know, doing it and feeling the pain from a vision perspective, seeing, you know, what it was that was needed to alleviate that pain and make our lives easier. And then uh, Thomas's vision around the technology, right? How can you take hundreds of servers and manage them as one? And so that, um, you know, sort of joint vision came together and, and made Blade Logic from a technology perspective. So at what point did it start to build kind of momentum as the kind of, product started to reach maturity and just, yeah. Yeah. So um, there were some folks out there who were using network shell early on. So we had a little bit of a, you know, a groundswell geek swell, if you will, uh, of, uh, of network shell folks, but no, I mean, really um, the, in the very beginning, so we were configuration management automation and nobody actually even knew what that was. You know, this is obviously uh, table stakes nowadays, but I mean, back then in, uh, in those days, it, it wasn't, right? People had at best some scripts for doing things, but we're really walking around with CDs and, and with uh, actual manual checklists, right? Going through and, and checking off, you know, did I disable this service? Did I do this? Did I do that, right? When they're going through either an installation or, or upgrade. Mm. And so... Uh, when we really, when I started seeing kind of the momentum, if you will, uh, as far as the traction of, of technology, uh, was when we started seeing people with titles 
that were related to our technology because this didn't exist before. And then I'd be introduced to somebody who was the director of configuration management. And I'd say, whoa, okay, hold on a second. <laughs> you have a title <laughs> that actually matches our technology now. And so, you know, yeah. it, it really started to, uh, to move in that direction where um, everybody uh, saw the value of not just automating, but automating in a very standardized way, right? So they didn't have to, you know, it wasn't their core business. Mm. James, tell us about your transition then from software development into kind of the pre-sales uh, function within Blade Logic. Yeah, so I mean, first and foremost, I didn't even know that pre-sales existed as a role. I had absolutely no idea. I'm sure many developers today uh, also have absolutely no idea that this role even exists. Um, but uh, what ended up happening was Blade Logic is a very technical cell. And uh, we were going in and we were having to install in very heterogeneous, very messy environments, right? Big banks and, and pharmas and others that just had these data centers that had evolved over uh, many years. And so it really, uh, every new sale was, it was a very big technical challenge to overcome, just to even get the product installed and doing what it needed to do. And so the salespeople, the, the company uh, was born in, uh, in Boston, right, in Massachusetts and, and the East Coast. Uh, what the sales reps on the East Coast would do is they would just pull the engineers. So anybody who was even slightly customer facing that was working on the product, you know, such as, as myself, we get pulled into sales cycles early on. So not as sales engineers, we were still engineers building the product, but if somebody needed to uh, do a real deep dive on how we did bare metal provisioning, for example, then I would be pulled into the sales call. And, and uh, so that was just happening a lot. Like I was just naturally, and they, they saw obviously me personally, I actually was quite customer facing and I was able to articulate the technology and the value uh, while I was on these calls. And so I just get, kept getting pulled more and more onto the sales calls because obviously that, that happens, right? The salespeople see, ooh, this, this went really well when I had this guy on here. I'm going to you know, keep, uh, keep, keep him uh, uh, warm on, on all my sales calls. And uh, so what ended up happening was the East Coast was actually doing quite well from a sales perspective because they had these resources right there, right? Where they could even just fly us uh, down to New York or whatever it is when we're, when we're selling. Now the West coast uh, had gotten spun up as well as we were growing the company. And uh, the problem was, you know, folks like Mark Musselman, who I know that, that you spoke to, right? Was, was uh, really getting the West coast running from a sales perspective, but anytime he needed engineering help, of course it was a lot more difficult for him. It's not a one hour flight from, you know, to, to get a, an engineer on a plane from Boston to New York, for example. And so what ended up happening was um, I spoke with uh, Vijay Manwani, who uh, was the CTO of Blade Logic. And, uh, and he had seen me on all these different sales calls that he had participated on as well. And he asked if I would be interested in moving to the West Coast, moving to, uh, I guess I had my choice, but I chose the, uh, the Bay Area and uh, really starting and forming a sales engineering team, uh, you know, primarily focused on supporting the sales team out on, uh, on the West Coast. And uh, that's how I made the transition. Fantastic. And w was that just a natural progression for you? Was there any second thoughts about moving away from being so development focused or? 
Yeah, no, 100%. You know, one of the things, you know, I was really in the trenches. I was, uh, I mentioned I was customer facing and I, and I did have a sense that I wasn't necessarily using my talents to, you know, maximize my career, I guess. But, th- but that's because I was never going to be the absolute best programmer, right? I, I, was, I was good. I was building, you know, decent technology and I worked very late hours and, and had the startup mentality, of course, because that's all I'd done. Yeah. So from a development perspective, I, I got it done and I built product. I was never going to be the best out there and really shining career-wise as, as a developer. But one of the things that I worried about when I was moving into sales was I was thinking, geez, I might lose my technical chops, right? I, I, I'm, right now, I'm, I'm able to actually see the technology, play with it deep down, you know, write the code, build it. And that, to me, was really seeing what's going on in the world in the forefront of technology. And so that, that was what was in my head. What I discovered, though, very quickly, which was, was amazingly awesome, was moving out into the field. So when I was in my little pod, in my little cubicle writing code, I was focused on one piece of the product, you know, certain problems for a particular customer set that I'm going to be solving. And that was it. You know, you had your narrow focus on, you had your headphones on, that's what you were doing. When I moved into sales engineering, I got exposed to how does Bank of America run their data center? How are they automating? How are they writing their apps and getting them out to production? How is, you know, E-Trade doing it? How is Salesforce doing it? Like, you know, how are all these different companies doing all these amazing things in technology? And so, you know, it went from me thinking for a second I was going to actually lose my techno, you know, technical chops and, and, and knowledge about how to do this stuff in the you know, forefront of technology, and it actually was the opposite. It just completely exposed me to these amazing systems and amazing people, uh, and, and you know, that narrow focus got, got broadened uh, immensely. Mm. Amazing. So, so obviously, James, you know, you've come from a very, very technical kind of background, development background, as we, as we kind of uh, just spoke about. But obviously, at the same time, the organization was going through quite a transition from a sales perspective. And you saw several sales leaders um, until obviously John McMahon, but obviously Steve Strachan as well. So can you kind of just tell us through what that was like on the sidelines, but then also being in the pre-sales um, side, how your role then started to evolve from there? Yeah. So, um, of course, I was just uh, cutting my teeth as, as a sales guy. And so, uh, you know, it's not like I came on with a lot of experience and knew what good or bad looked like uh, at the time. Right. Uh, I guess I knew what my paychecks looked like and my commission checks looked like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what, you know, what I really do remember um, was there from a momentum perspective, okay, we were um, with, as you said, multiple sales leaders, and we were actually doing quite well, okay? So, we were uh, um, very smart people at the helm, very smart people out in the field selling, and, uh, and there was a need out there, even though it was super new and, and we were still pretty evangelical. There, were, there was still enough of a need for the size of the company that we were. So, I was feeling good about the growth and about us doing some transactions. We got some good logos on board. Um, but what ended up happening when they swapped out the, the sales management, first of all, they, they did move to Steve Strahan and Steve came on 
with John's playbook. Now, of course, I didn't know who John McMahon was at all at the time uh, right then. I just knew Steve Strahan. And he came on and he really started uh, recruiting talent as well as um, training, right, and coaching the talent that we had on board to work with the playbook and to, uh, and, and to trust it. Okay, and he's a very inspirational guy, ex-football player, you know, really, uh, you know, great guy. And, uh, and so I started seeing this traction. I started seeing some deals, you know, dropping uh, at a, a faster rate, shorter sales cycles. Um, you know, so, so it was more like a feeling, you know, you're just getting a feeling that the company was taking some more momentum. Okay. Now, when we got John on board, which wasn't, you know, that long after uh, getting Steve, it was, I mean, I would have to go back in time to see exactly the time span it was, but, but we're talking about less than six months, okay? I saw a further transformation that was like, it was like a hockey stick curve at that point. And uh, it, it was just incredible, right? It was almost like uh, he turned the lights on, you know, brought the magic, whatever you want to call it, right? And, and uh, he just, they just recruited amazing, amazing um, competitive and coachable salespeople who were just absolute bulldogs, right? Just maniacal, you know, 12 hour a day workers, but, but also, you know, super intelligent. And like I said, very coachable on board with believing in the playbook that John brought on board. And it just, uh, it just absolutely was night and day. Next thing you know, we were just, I forget what the POC win rate went up to, but I mean, it was at, at one point we were closing. And when I say POC win rate, we'll talk about this probably uh, a little later on as well, but you can win POCs and still not get any money, right? <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of the worst place to be. Yeah. But with, uh, with John coming on board and with everybody following this, um, you know, his guidance and his playbook, we were now, Every POC that we were running, we were basically closing business. I mean, it was up, up over 90%, I'm sure, at that point. And that, you could just feel it. Like, it's not just something that you kind of see or you can talk around, like, uh, you know, marketing stats or something along those lines. This was something you could feel, right? It was in the commission checks. It was in, um, you know, all of our celebrations as we were growing as a company uh, extremely rapidly at that, at that point. Wow. And how... Did, did you feel the pressure in terms of scaling the pre-sales organization to stay alongside that? Or was it a natural kind of um, growth at the same time? Yeah, I mean, it's a very technical sell. And, uh, and one thing I would say uh, that John brings on the pre-sales side is just he has tremendous respect for pre-sales and what pre-sales brings uh, to his process and to the sales cycle and, and the sales organization, okay? So, so from the very beginning, John has, you know, uh, looks at the sales team as the, the peers of, of uh, account execs and, and pre-sales. And so what that allowed us to do was keep a pre-sales uh, ratio, right? A lot of times pre-sales is, is like a pool of resources that are going to be used uh, during sales cycles by the reps. Sometimes they're territory-based or whatnot, but it, it ends up being a lot more like a pool. And so you end up with a ratio of how many sales engineers to account execs that you have. And uh, being a technical sell and being that John really respected the involvement of talented pre-sales uh, during the sales cycle, he allowed us to keep that ratio really high, 
I mean, I think we had it at like a 0.8 uh, minimum, right? Really? Where, yeah. uh, where we had uh, a lot of pre-sales engineers. So, you know, mm -hmm. to your question, um, you know, scaling the team uh, was very natural because that was just what was expected to do, to keep this ratio and to keep, um, you know, the, the pre-sales organization moving its stride as we were going with the AEs. Mm. And that relationship between sales and pre-sales, did that develop over time at BladeLogic? Was that part of the, the growth of the business or was it really something from the beginning? You know, I felt it was something from the beginning. I was one of the very first sales engineers as I moved over. Uh, Damon Miller, who I think you might be speaking with, uh, was uh, the actual first who was hired on as a, as a sales engineer. Um, but I think, uh, I think it started all the way back as I was telling the story before to when they were actually pulling the engineers into the sales cycles. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we absolutely, it was an extremely technical sell. We absolutely needed engineers in uh, you know, not necessarily uh, in, in a super intro discovery meeting, but you know, anywhere beyond that uh, would, would go beyond what the A's were, were capable of talking about from a technical perspective. And so uh, it, it was, it was, it was possibly out of necessity, but from the very, very beginning, uh, sales engineering was integrated into the sales process. Yeah. And I believe, I believe the West Coast was the same as the East in that rather than bring on experienced pre-sales from maybe in those days, the likes of EMC or, or Dell, it was more of the, the DNA and maybe a sysadmin background or something comparable. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, you talk about, you know, the sales and the sales methodology and the types of characteristics that go along with being able to trust in something like that and execute against it. Um, but in addition to that is really the startup mentality too, right? So there are a lot of, you know, I, I don't want to forget because obviously there are sales teams at large companies as well, right? And they're executing and I'm sure they can benefit from, you know, Medic and, and John's playbook and whatever else at the large companies as well. But when you're talking about a, a very, very small startup, you need a certain um, profile, right, of person that's willing to, well, first of all, take the risks in the first place, but then also just, just have that belief, have that confidence, you know, really exude um, their, you know, if you don't believe in the product and the way that it's going to be adding value and solving the pain to the customers, they're not going to believe you. Right. So when we're uh, bringing on board sales engineers, a lot of times we would go for like sysadmins and we get them really fired up about the, the role change, much like I made the role change. So I would tell my story and I'd talk about how this really opens up their world as far as building a career, getting to know all these different companies and all these amazing ways they're using technology. And uh, really what I would be looking for is just that uh, incredible resilience, uh, work ethic, and, uh, and ability, coachability, right? Ability to come on board and just say, I know nothing about sales, show me that world, right? Mm -hmm. And then we would put these tech folks in front of uh, the prospects and they would have instant credibility because they would have that background, right? They're not just yeah. coming as, you know, not that I don't even know how many people came straight out of college to become sales engineers uh, at the time, right? Again, I didn't even know yeah. the role existed. Um, but that said, when somebody did have a background doing the types of things and feeling the pain, they could share that with the customer and it really uh, went a long way.
Mm. Yeah, fantastic. So, so how did you find, obviously, with, uh, with John coming in, rolling out his playbook, um, you know, to rolling out the process, how, how did you find adapting to that kind of sales methodology and those processes? Yeah, so I don't know uh, what you're going to hear from the other sales engineers who you interview, but, uh, but what I've seen in my career is this is amazing for sales engineering, okay? And it's, it's, it's just so accepted and appreciated for, for very, very many reasons, okay? I mean, obviously, the first reason is everybody wants to be a successful company and this methodology builds successful companies. That's, <laughs> you know, why you have this podcast right now. So that's first and foremost. But it goes beyond that because it goes down to the day-to-day, right? Well, first of all, any methodology is better than the art of sales when it comes to an engineer's brain, right? The engineer wants to know, okay, <laughs> these are the steps. If I follow this path, right, at, at, at the end of this path is my pot of gold, right? They, they don't want uh, just, let's just run really fast in any direction and hopefully we collect some gold along the way, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so just the thought of having a methodology and, and um, really helps out a, a sales engineer. But knowing, you know, where you are in the sales cycle, knowing qualification uh, techniques and, and really understanding, is there a deal or is there not a deal there? Okay. And I think, I think you know, a lot of times the sales engineers, people might think of them as just geeks who want to be going out and, and doing technology, right? And uh, that's actually not the case. That may be the case for professional services people, but for sales engineers, we want to win. We want to close business and we want to make money. I mean, I, that, that's it. I mean, we are salespeople first and foremost. And so seeing John's methodology really uh, allowed us to kind of, you know, it takes that engineering brain that wants structure, that wants some sort of a, a process that if you follow, you know, you will be successful and, and uh, laid it on top of the art of sales. And, and I think that's why it's, it's extremely well received. Yeah. I guess from a management perspective as well, if, if the pre-sales team is having to work on poorly qualified POCs or POVs, that becomes very difficult to kind of maintain engagement as well comparative to the medic methodology yeah i mean it's there's nothing more disheartening than winning a poc technically Mm. and then not getting a deal because there just wasn't a deal there in the first place right we had not met with the economic buyer we hadn't you know discovered that there was enough pain uh and uh, for the value of the technology or or there wasn't a budget there or whatever else right so a lot of times companies especially large companies they're they're going to have teams who can evaluate software just as what they do right just to see what's out there and uh so it's very easy for a salesperson with uh you know the rose glasses to uh, you know somebody's taking your call that's great they want you to come in they want you to hang out they want you to show them the software and then you know you get to this point where uh, like i say like a company like wells fargo they would set up a desk for a sales engineer if they would just come in and talk about this new technology all day long right it doesn't mean that they were going to give them any money right yeah and so um so yeah, absolutely. You know, working on POCs that we know are going to actually deliver value and 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 drive revenue for the company is mm. huge. And it's it's disheartening if you don't. I think it goes even beyond that too, because it's not just the layer of sales engineering. You have to understand yeah. at a startup, 
the product doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, it does work, but you're, you're, you're building a product, right? Yeah. It doesn't necessarily do everything that the customers need. If you're installing in heterogeneous environments, there's always, um, you know, uh, things that are going to be broken just based on the environment that you couldn't even have predicted in the first place, right? They have these firewalls or whatever the heck it is that's, that's causing the, the product not to work. So we're constantly in these uh, POCs uh, engaging support, so the support organization, and we're engaging engineering and product management. And, uh, you know, we have credibility, like I talk about the credibility that we need to build with the customer, but there's a huge amount of credibility that we need to build internally with the engineering team and product management and support. Yeah. So if we're out there engaging in non-qualified opportunities, it's not just our own time. I mean, that's going to really annoy us, right? Yeah. But it's going to be the time of all these other people that we need to bring in. And then our credibility with them gets damaged. Mm. So, so and, 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 you know, that's like we keep a bank of credibility. And it's, it's really important to have that because if you are going to close a real deal, you might need a particular feature or capability and it's that credibility when you go to engineering and product management that helps you get that into the product, that helps them believe you, you know what you're doing and, and will bring uh, success to the business. So, you know, again, I, I, I'm, kind of, I'm very passionate about this because it's not just, are we wasting some sales engineers time? It's, mm-hmm. are we actually gonna fail as a company if we're going after non-qualified opportunities? That's it. Wow. It's, it's interesting because obviously one of your elements of the play, your playbook is, you know, how the pre-sales plugs in to the sales organization. So just tell us a little bit more about that because you gave a really good account when we've spoken previously about being in a deal environment and scoping the room. So kind of just tell us a little bit more about that kind of relationship in your, in your view. Yeah, so I think that uh, uh, pre-sales, uh, what we do is we go in as peers with this playbook, with our account execs, in order to drive sales processes forward, right? And hopefully with our time, get deals closed in the quarter. And, and there are a lot of things that are involved in that. But really, um, we're going to come at any part of that sales process with a different context, than the account exec does. And that's great because then you're, you're, you're really balancing, right? The account exec might be really good at sniffing out budget, right? Getting, you know, one department to move budget from, from one area to the next or whatever else it is. And the sales engineer comes with their own skill set. So I always, I give an example, like if, if a sales engineer and an AE are in a room with the customer and we're giving a demo and the sales engineer is up at the, the uh, screen giving the demo and presentation, and there's Mike at the back of the room who asks this very technical and in-depth question. Well, the account exec might be sitting there and from their context, they see Mike, they see that he's very influential in the room. He's paying attention and he just asked a great technical question. This is fantastic. They're super engaged. This is great. That's what they're thinking. Meanwhile, the sales engineer wearing their sales hat and methodology hat is sitting there thinking, hmm, I see the way Mike phrased that question and I bet that Mike is actually a champion for our competitor because that's exactly the way that they do this. That's the way they solve this problem. We come about it in a completely different way. And so if he's asking the question that way, it's because, you know, that's what he has been, you know, has been ingrained and and he's possibly a champion for the competitor. And 
So after the meeting, you know, so the sales engineer isn't just sitting there spewing a bunch of stuff about the technology. They're putting a little bookmark in their head saying, well, after this meeting, let's sync up with the AE. Let's talk about Mike at the back of the room and let's figure out, you know, what do we do? Do we bring him to our side? What is the sphere of influence and all the other types of things that uh, you would need to do to help move the deal in your direction, right? Especially if you have a champion for the competitor. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, so James, obviously we, we've covered coming into Blade Logic very early days as a software engineer and, and being you know instrumental to, to the development of the product initially, transitioning into pre-sales and, and moving to the West Coast. Um, then suddenly, obviously in 2008, the BMC acquisition. Um, talk to us about that from your perspective and and um obviously ultimately what it meant for your career but also how Mm -hmm. you felt at that point at that moment of acquisition sure so um you know i see it from two sides and uh you know from uh you know being the the sales engineer and being the the tech geek the tech geek in me wants to talk about the acquisition from that perspective a little bit which is that, you know, you hear a lot about, you know, this is where software goes to die. You know, good software goes to die when, when big companies acquire smaller, you know, startups that have hot technology, right? And uh, so, of course, that's the first thing that, that hits our brains as, as geeks and being, you know, real evangelists for this uh, particular technology is what is BMC going to do kill, to kill it, right? To ruin it and, and, uh, and so on. And uh, what actually happened from a technology perspective was it was an amazing fit and it was on both sides. So from a blade logic perspective, we were hitting a wall where people were asking us, well, does your technology do things that were kind of outside the domain of what the technology did? So it was automation technology for, for deployments and upgrades and all that kind of stuff. But people would ask, well, what do you do for change management? And we have to say, well, we're, we're not going to build a whole change management system. You know, we, we just have to integrate with them and, and whatever else. And so we were being brought into this bigger world of process, right? And uh, we're never going to build the technology to satisfy that, nor, you know, when you have to integrate with everything under the sun that's out there, you know, you start getting into challenges as well. And so from a technology perspective, we came into BMC and we filled that server automation gap where they had the rest of the stuff in the portfolio, right? They had monitoring, they had all the change management and all the the process oriented stuff. Mm. Um, So it was just a wonderful fit and they plugged it in, you know, perfectly. So, so I don't know how often that actually happens (laughs) in, in acquisitions and from a technology perspective, but I'll tell you, it it felt amazing. They, they, I don't know how many resources they put to the engineering team, but they invested heavily. I mean, it's still out there being sold right now, uh, Blade Logic. And, and so that's, uh, you know, incredible. And it just shows their commitment to the technology and, and to, uh, and, and how good of a fit it was. So anyway, that's on the technology side. And I think that really helps, right? Because you just completely crush the culture of any incoming company. If, if you take everything that they believed in and, and start putting it on the back burner, right. Or, or, um, you know, not investing, uh, as heavily. Yeah. On the, other side, and, and I'll speak to it more from the sales perspective, because I, I really wasn't privy to, you know, how engineering was integrated or some of the other departments, yeah. um, you know, specifically, but from a sales and a sales engineering perspective, what was really interesting was that the, the management team from Blade Logic ended up actually being given teams uh, at BMC, 
right? So I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to use the term taking over. Obviously, BMC was a much bigger company, but they really respected the, I'm, I'm guessing whether it's the methodologies, whether it's, you know, the, uh, the profile of all of the people in the team. Obviously, it was, uh, you know, good foresight from them because, uh, you know, why you have this podcast right now is all these, uh, these leaders and these individual contributors have done great, you know, great things. Yeah. Um, but they did. They gave, they gave us all a chance. So I was given a team to run uh, automation in the West Coast. Um, and uh, of course, as you know, John was, was given the global sales team as well. And, and really the, the culture and the management style of Blade Logic kind of took over at BMC. Mm. Yeah. And fr- from a pre-sales perspective as well as sales, did you find? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, we were, uh, it, it, from a pre-sales perspective, we were a little bit more um, cornered in the automation space. You know, so mm-hmm. we didn't, you know, in pre-sales, your knowledge of the technology in the space obviously is a lot more relevant than just the, the AEs and the AE management that's a lot more kind of um, abstracted. And so we were a little bit more, you know, focused in our automation space. But within that automation space, yeah, we had, uh, we had free reign. Sure. And did, did you and your team, did you transition to a, a kind of broader solution cell of the other products or was it quite overlay or, or specific automation focus still? Yeah. So, it, you know, it was, a, it was a little bit more overlay and automation focused in the very beginning, of course, right? And we're, we're trying to cross train everybody and, and make sure that uh, the technology gets integrated correctly. Um, but no, it was very quickly before uh, wh- uh, when we started learning their vision, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, from, from the very beginning, they would show this, I keep making this circle here with my hands, but the reason is it was, it was this l- automation and, and uh, process and monitoring life cycle that they had, right? Uh, yeah. and, um, and really how we plugged into that. So it was, uh, it, it was very close to the beginning that we started selling uh, that vision, right? And how automation kind of plugged into the whole vision of, of uh, your people process and technology. So, so obviously from a sales perspective, John McMahon did have, you know, he obviously took the, the top, top table seat within the sales organization, obviously. So mm-hmm. sales started to really influence within BMC. H- how much did the pre-sales organization from Blade Logic start imposing their best practice on BMC at that moment? Yeah, so I think, um, again, I, I really think that sales engineers now, now at a big company, there's going to be a lot of different, you know, types of people. Let me just put it that way across all departments, I'm sure, right? And, uh, you know, kind of only doing startups my whole career and, and especially up until then, you know, I was used to working with these highly driven A player, you know, just, just absolutely uh, uh, competitive um, folks on the sales engineering team. And uh, there were obviously at a big company, you know, there was a decent number of those who were there at BMC, but there were also, you know, a decent number of folks who had been, at the company for a long time and, and gotten pretty slow, gotten, you know, comfortable that they knew this one little technology and when they needed to be called in, you know, they would be called in, but they could just kind of rest on their laurels knowing that, well, I'm the only guy who knows this, you know, mainframe, whatever X, Y, Z it is, right? And, and so I'm going to be okay. 
just kind of riding out my career. And we come in and we're all like, oh, you know, driving <laughs> a million miles an hour, I'm, you know. So, uh, so I think there was a little bit of a, a you know, a culture hit uh, that way. And, and, but what was good is, is that you don't want to talk about that in like a negative way, like, you know, the, the, that uh, the folks who were not moving at that pace had to, you know, move out of the way but more that it inspired and allowed the folks that already did, you know, were of that profile to say, oh, wow, okay, here we can go, here we go, right? Here we can, we can uh, now work at, um, at mm-hmm. this level, right? Amazing. Oh. And James, a, a question it may be slightly difficult to answer, but I uh, would be keen to understand your thoughts. Um, the, the pre-sales, not just the relationship, but the techniques and the, um, you know, the integration of all the different functions. How much do you think Blade Logic and the subsequent BMC acquisition has influenced that in today's pre-sales community and, and industry? Yeah, so I think, um, well, I think, you know, as we talk about the, uh, um, the methodology of, of selling, we talk about medic and, and so on. There, there is a role, you know, a very specific role for pre-sales in that. And, and it, it actually um, is like, there are steps along the process that pre-sales can own, for example, and help move the process forward. So you're obviously very familiar with the acronym, but, you know, collecting metrics, for example. Well, this is something that, the industry just wasn't doing, right? It was, let's go in and, and let's show a bunch of wow factor. Let's get them excited with a demo. Maybe they need to, to do a POC. Well, hopefully as part of the sales process, that'll get them even more excited. And then they're so excited and they have this budget. So let's see if we can get some of that budget, right? I mean, that, that, that was, you know, the, the less structured approach, obviously, you know, prior to, uh, to this methodology really expanding the way that it did. And it moved into something that was a lot more predictable. And so, and, and, and not just predictable, but you can feel like it's, it's the back of your hand because you have the process. So like metrics, for example, right? Um, this wasn't just like, oh, when you're having a beer with somebody that, that you're selling with, you know, after, uh, after the workday, uh, you're going to ask them about, well, how long does it take you to do this or whatever else? No, we have a process, right? Here's uh, a document that we've laid out, and it's really for us figuring out what their decision criteria is, what are all the capabilities they're going to need. And as you're walking through that document, guess what? It's a beautiful place to start asking metrics questions and start collecting that information. And so I think that, you know, I think that what really evolved from a pre-sales perspective is moving from this sort of unstructured, uh, um, just really geek out on the technology and, and make sure it works and we're going to close the deal to yeah. what, you know, Medic brings to the table, which is obviously qualifying out if there's not a deal. And then, uh, uh, you know, just as importantly, preserving the value. You know, I talk about collecting the metrics. Well, what is the point of collecting the metrics in the first place is really so, so that when you do get through the sales cycle and you start moving into procurement, you have something to defend, right? So you can say, well, this is the value that I'm defending. This is why this stuff costs X or Y amount of money uh, and, and really um, justifying uh, the, the discount levels, right? And, and so on. So everything, everything has its place. Uh, uh, I think, you know, metrics, 
identifying pain, of course, uh, is, is uh, both the AE and the SE. But what I find is that the SEs, um, they're trusted more. When an AE is asking you, well, what pain are you feeling? And you're an engineer, you're like, well, nothing. I, you know, I've written my scripts and everything is tight and it's all good. You know, don't worry about it. We're good, right? But then when the sales engineer is talking to them over on the side, you know, oh, you know, I hate this bug about Unix that causes this thing to happen and that thing to happen. And next thing you know, they're opening up and they're saying, yeah, that takes two hours of every one of my days. It's driving me crazy, right? And, and uh, you know, again, just, 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 I think it evolved by bringing actual methodology for capturing the stuff that's important uh, uh, in a sales process. Mm. And obviously, um, kind of BMC, you started to kind of scale a bigger team. Was that was there kind of more responsibility from a management perspective, James? Did that kind of kick in as well at that BMC? Yeah, no, definitely. And and so um, I, you know, I had to learn I, a lot of good things came from BMC. I had only really done startups, and um, you know, I learned a lot about what it takes. You know, I talk about some of these uh, B and possibly C players who uh, who were just kind of hanging out and whatever else. Well. You know, my first instinct as a manager at, at BMC would be, there's only room for A players. That's how I've run my ship at, you know, every other uh, uh, place. And, and so everybody's got to go who's not an A player and we'll replace them and whatever else. Uh, and what would uh, happen was I really learned a lot about, you know, when a company reaches a certain size, a certain scale, if people are adding more value than they're detracting, then that's actually okay. <laughs> and, and so even though they're not a, you know, highly driven A player, you know, it's okay. They're, they're, there's a place for them there and they're adding more value and they're helping the company along and, uh, and learning how, you know, from a management perspective to, to coach and guide and, and grow the careers of people of all different, you know, that, that have different career aspirations, I guess is what I'd say. So I, I really, you know, BMC brought, that to me, which, you know, I would have thought it was, you know, kind of my way or the highway, A players or get out of the way. And, and instead, I've, I've learned a lot about, you know, what it takes to really scale an organization and make sure that it can function for the long term. Yeah. Well, the recruitment of the talent is, again, an element of your playbook. So kind of just tell us a little bit about what you do, what your approach is, what you're looking for, and, 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 and how you approach recruitment. Yeah, so so I'll talk about it from a startup perspective because really, you know, in subsequent companies, including uh, you know my latest, it's really about growing um, a team from you know five to to forty or whatnot. So so I'll talk about you know from that size of a startup because I think it is different. There are different profiles for different types of companies. I'm sure you know like Oracle hires differently, right? <laughs> uh, but for me, for, from a startup perspective, when I'm looking for sales engineers. I really, I look for three main areas, okay? And this is really in, in no particular order, but, um, but I'll just start with sales acumen. So, I, you know, I'm a firm believer that any of my sales engineers, they should be able to carry a bag themselves, right? They're just choosing not to, right? They, they want to stay in the technology and it's just, a, you know, they have a, a little different mindset that way. But as far as like having that sales acumen, having that competitive uh, nature and, and understanding all the stuff that I was, I was talking about, right? So, so like I, my, my example of giving the demo and really sniffing out that champion for the competitor. So, so uh, I think that that's 
a huge uh, factor in, in uh, the profile that I'm hiring. The next one is, is technical acumen. And this is why when I, when I talk about a startup, why it's a little different than a big company is that I don't get the ability to hire like specialists and the deep technical folks who do the POCs and the folks that you would put in front of the execs, right? So, so from a technical perspective, I always look at it as like depth and breadth. And uh, the depth has to be everything from being able to dumb down the technology to pure business value in some meeting with a bunch of execs to then being able to go up on the whiteboard and, you know, you're talking with the gray beard architects and, you know, figuring out exactly what this architecture is going to look like on the whiteboard to then that same sales engineer sitting next to the admin installing and troubleshooting the software when you're running a, a POC, you know, on the keys. And, you know, when they're swearing up and down that there's no firewalls between two machines, but the software is still not working, our sales engineer proves to them, you know, with this technical ability, no, actually, you don't know your own environment. There is a firewall there, right? That, that kind of thing. So, just my point is that the top, that top to bottom, as far as um, the depth of technical skills needs to be there. And that's, um, it exists out there, but it's, it's tough. You know, it's tough to find somebody who, who can both speak to execs and be down there in the weeds, uh, troubleshooting a problem. Mm-hmm. From a breadth perspective, then I guess it, it depends on the technology that you're selling, but, but regardless of the technology you're selling, it's more about having recent relevant experience in that space and those types of technologies, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really the technical aspect and then the third one, and, and this uh, is just as important as the other ones, is leadership. Now, now, I call it leadership qualities as opposed to like management. Not, not everybody wants to manage people, right, in an HR sense and, and deal with all of that kind of stuff. But regardless of whether you want to manage people, you need to want to be a leader. At a startup, if you can be successful, if you can figure out what works, well, that's all fine and good, but that's not really what the company needs. You'll be successful, but the company won't. So what we need you to do is figure out how to be successful and then help stamp out a bunch of mini use, right? So this might be through mentoring and, and helping with the hiring process and interviewing and all that kind of stuff. So I need the people that I'm hiring to be, you know, really wanting that. I also, you know, I like to promote from within. I think that that's really, really important. And so if people do want to be, you know, people managers, then, uh, then that's great as well. So, so James, let's just take the scenario where you, you've just joined a company, um, you know, it's absolutely cutting edge. There isn't really kind of relevant tech, well, I say there isn't relevant technical skills. It's, it's a new kind of market, you know, really at the, kind of on, 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 the, on the cutting edge. Um, what are you going for? Are, are you looking for winners? Are you looking for sales engineering experience? Are you looking for a specific technical acumen? What is it you're looking in that environment? Yeah, so I think, uh, well, the leadership and the sales acumen, they just translate across the board. So, I mean, that, that's absolutely, those are fundamentals that will hold true regardless of, of what technology that I'm selling. So, if the technology is the thing that's out there and, and maybe it's, it's completely bleeding edge, right? So, there's not going to be somebody who, uh, who, who does that particular thing or has been doing that particular thing in the past, um, there's, there's kind of, there's two things, right? So, so there, there are the tangential technologies. So, so the things that are, are like, 
you know, if I'm selling things like, um, like I, I was at day two IQ where we're selling uh, microservice automation and, and Kubernetes and, and so on. Um, I might look for somebody who has say DevOps experience, right? Because really uh, they've been living in a world that's, that's very similar around automating deployments and, and so on and so forth. So you can get, you know, some, some relevant experience by looking at sort of those side spaces that go along with the technology that, that you're selling, okay? And then I think um, also what you can do is you can recruit from the prior generation, right? I mean, as, as you've seen in, in, as technologies come out, there's never, I mean, I can't even think of the last technology that was a true discovery innovation, right? That, that this whole concept didn't exist before, right? What it is, is just reinventing the wheel over and over again and, and hopefully, you know, iterating and improving on it. And so, you know, if I want somebody who uh, will understand the world of container orchestration, for example, well, I can go to VMware, right? And I can look at people who have done virtualization and understand that, right? Because, uh, uh, you know, that was the prior generation. Then you get kind of, you get uh, the best of both worlds, right? Who, who will be able to quickly learn the new technology that they might not have experience with because it's, it's very related. But then you also get the person who understands all the pains that that technology was not solving that the new generation technology is. So when you're getting them in front of the customer, they're going to have you know, that credibility and the ability to, you know, speak from experience. This is why the new way, right, in an evangelical sale, which needs to be if it's new technology, this is why the new way is better and, and worth you actually investing in it. Fantastic. And um, so to, to bring us back to um, your career, James, so after about four years post-acquisition, um, so a successful time at BMC and, and grown with, uh, and scaled your career within a larger organization. Um, in May 2012, you, you made the jump to, to Sumo Logic. So mm-hmm. I'm sure there's quite a few reasons around that, around people and technology and, and other factors. But um, talk us through how you, you made that jump and, and why. Yeah, so um, there was a, a couple of things, but I mean, f- first and foremost, the only reason I even knew Sumo Logic existed was uh, Mark Musselman. And uh, so, so Mark was uh, the AE who helped grow the uh, West uh, team with me. And um, yeah. you know, we closed a lot of business together. I have a lot of uh, you know, respect uh, uh, for Mark uh, as a professional and a person. So, uh, so that was one thing when he had mentioned that there was this opportunity that, uh, that came about. And, uh, you know, he had heard about it through David Acheri. So small, you know, small world, Dave had gone over to uh, uh, Greylock. And uh, this was one of the companies that, uh, that Greylock was funding. And so that, that's how we heard about it. But what ended up happening, and I think this, this probably happens uh, quite frequently when a, a lot of times you see like AESE pairs moving uh, together, right? Whether they're leaders or, or ICs, right? Moving uh, at the same time, they have this trust and working relationship, of course, that they know will work. But I mean, one of the things that, that Mark came to me with was, can you look at this technology and tell me if it's any good, even before he was trying to recruit me over, right? He was trying to make a decision just for himself, but yeah. you know, wanted to trust my opinion, you know, talk to these guys, learn about the technology and let me know, you know is this something that... Uh, that's actually any good, 
right? And it was through that investigation and, and obviously uh, Mark and I then made the joint decision to join. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. And that, that was very early days again, I guess, right? It, it was a real... Uh... That, that, yeah, that was super early days. So mm. it was, I guess... It's a little later for uh, for me than than Blade Logic was. Of course, Blade Logic. I was one of the initial developers uh, building the product, so there wasn't even really a product to go to market in the in the beginning. Uh, Sumo Logic actually did get to the point where they had a, you know a very initial product to go to market, and we're just starting to build out the go to market team. But I still think we were in the first like twenty five people at uh, Sumo. So yes, very early. Hmm. And then obviously, um, you know, from, from Sumo Logic, um, you know, a good stint there, uh, obviously executing your, your kind of playbook, you know, really putting your print. And actually, it was a bit of getting the band back together again, wasn't it? Because there was actually quite a few of the, the kind of pre-sales guys that kind of came with you, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, both from a sales and a pre-sales perspective, um, there were a lot of folks who, uh, who came over and. You know, I think a lot of that has to do, uh, again, with, with trust in the, in, in the leadership. So, I mean, I'd, I'd like to think myself, um, you know, as, as one of those folks, but definitely Mark Musselman as well, right, had, had built just a whole ton of credibility. And, and so people, you know, this crew knows what they're going to get, right? And, and you'll see this as, you know, of course, you're interviewing the other pre-sales folks that, that they've done the same thing, right? The, the folks who went over to Mongo and went over to, you know, a lot of these other, uh, other companies, um, came from the same crew because they just know, um, they know it works, right? And they know they'll be amongst talent and, and peers. Um, so that, de- that definitely happened uh, at Sumo. It's funny, I was actually uh, just uh, cleaning out some boxes in my garage and I found <laughs> a old box. I think this was a box that I packed up when I packed my stuff from my desk at Sumo Logic, and I, I don't even know if I even opened it since, right? And so, yeah. you know, there's stuff that, that was in there from, from even the beginning. I think I had a, a welcome packet with like a Sumo breath mint and other stuff like that from when I had originally joined. But anyway, um, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the things that I was uh, seeing in there was the sales kickoff. I think it was SKO training. I don't think it was a side training. I think it was one of the SKO trainings. Kickoff medic books, right? And, and I, I pulled it out. It's now in my, uh, in my bookshelf, right? Because I'm, I'm going to be using it going forward as well. But it was a book that, that Mark had uh, put together and, and uh, it was the medic training for the sales team over, uh, you know, over SKO or whatever it was. And uh, so all my answers that I'd written out, what is the economic buyer and all this kind of stuff that, <laughs> that we were doing at the time. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's it. I mean, not only did the, the people move, but the methodology moved as well. Hmm. An element, another element of your kind of playbook that you, you, you speak about is guiding the product direction. Um, is that part of the reason why you like the, 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 the startup um, kind of company environment because you, you can actually influence. Just tell us a little bit about that and why that's important to you. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's important uh, just at, at smaller companies to me, I, like when you say influence, I like influencing the people who I surround myself with because I like surrounding myself with very smart people, right? It's, <laughs> it's one of those things that, that drives success. 
but then also, yeah, I mean, from a technology perspective, being able to, uh, I really look at it from, from, from two sides, right? So, so one of them is going to be, we're out trying to get deals over the line. And when you need to get a deal over the line, a lot of times, you know, you'll go through, uh, you'll figure out what is going to be the decision criteria for them to move forward with your technology. And pretty much always, there's going to be a thing or two, especially at a large enterprise, that you don't do yet, right? Or you don't do well. There's going to be futures, right? And roadmap and whatever else. And to help get that deal over the line, you really need to champion those things for your prospect back to product management, and so, so very, you know, I would call it like, like tactical enhancements to get deals over the line. Now, there's, there's a lot that goes into that, right? There's one understanding sort of, you always want to sell what's on the truck. If you're a sales engineer, you cannot sell a product that's not built and expect that you're going to go to product management and have them build for this particular customer, right? So you've got to always be pulling the customer on the customer side to no, this is the way we do things. No, this is the way we do things. I think you'd be better off if you did them this way versus, you know, oh yeah, we'll build it so you can do it the way that's in your head, right? So there's, there's that. You always have to make sure, you know, as a sales engineer that you're not just running the engineering to, to build whatever the heck it is that the customer is saying they need, right? Mm. And then the flip side to that is, you know, once you've whittled it down to just the bare essentials, that you're able to articulate those things and champion them to product such that they realize that, that well, one, yes, we, we do need to get this deal in for the quarter and we need to drive that revenue. It's, it's very important, even just in the short term and tactical, but also, you know, why this particular capability could be used by other customers, why this is going to help other sales cycles in the future. Right. And, mm -hmm. and so really, you know, there's that aspect of it, which is just the really tactical and you see it in your day-to-day -day sales, trying to get the deals over the line. And, uh, and like I say, using the skill set to primarily, um, you know, get the customer to believe in our methodology, but when there are the things that just fall outside, okay, getting those things over the line so that we can, uh, we can get the deal closed. Then there's also the other side, right? The other side is the long-term strategic roadmap stuff. And this is extremely important too, because when you start a company and you you know, the founders with all these, you know, amazing visions out of, like I said, with Blade Logic, we came out of doing this stuff. So we we had a good sense of what it would be that would be a product that would would automate and make our lives, you know, better and add a whole ton of value. But there's always a ton of stuff you don't know in practicality. We knew how it would impact us as a service provider, but we weren't going to be selling to only service providers. How is this going to help banks? How is this going to help pharma? How is this going to, so there's a ton of stuff that you just don't know. As an innovative service provider, we were willing to just run with bleeding edge technology and, and, and do, you know, all kinds of enhancements and fixes ourselves, all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, a large bank or a pharma or others, you know, they're, they're not staffed, nor are they necessarily in that uh, mindset to do that kind of thing for, for everybody's benefit, I'm sure. And so, uh, but anyway, so, so as sales engineers, what you need to do is we need to help the company build a product that people will give us money for, right? It sounds, it sounds so simple, it's stupid, but, but it's actually really hard because, you know, it's easier to think about what is an amazing innovation that people should believe in and they would be so much better off if they just did this. They, they really would, I guarantee it. 
Well, that's all fine and good, but a lot of companies go under <laughs> with that, right? You'll spend the investor money until you're, until you're done, right? So what you have to do is you have to keep that vision. You have to stick to it. You have to build towards it because you have to be kind of ahead of the curve when, when that pops. But in the meanwhile, you have to be thinking about what is the not sexy stuff that just is a pain in the ass, that somebody is going to give me money for today, right? So, so this could be, you know, you might be thinking about all of these amazing ML and AI algorithms that could make, you know, your um, automation system better, okay? But really, there's something not sexy, which is like some compliance report that will just show you how every user is configured or something along those lines that adds a ton of value. And it's not sexy, it's not fun to build, whatever else, doesn't matter, people are gonna pay money for it. That should get into the product. So hopefully, hopefully that makes sense, but it's the sales engineers. So like engineering, just living in a bubble is gonna always build towards that innovation and, and how people should buy, right? What sales engineering brings to the table is how these types of customers will actually buy. Right? Yeah, love it. So, after uh, nearly four years at Sumo Logic, James, um, January two thousand sixteen, you moved to uh, to Meso Mesosphere, sorry, as uh, mm -hmm. VP of Global Presales. Yeah, um, was that a bit of a different move in terms of kind of culture and technology than previous? Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it, it definitely was uh, different from a culture perspective. This was, um, you know, really the first company that, that I'd gone to. I did go again with uh, Mr. Musselman, uh, very influential in my career, I guess. But, but Mark had not gone on to run the sales team. Mark had actually taken a role in BD, so, so running and, and right. building the, uh, the partners in the, in the BD department. Uh, mm -hmm. I was coming on trend global pre-sales. And so I was going to be working with, you know, different folks who had not come from that world. They certainly, you know, had mentors in, in that world, but not, uh, not really come from the blade logic world. So that was definitely a change, uh, a culture shift for me, me coming in, just kind of expecting this is the way we're going to operate. And then seeing, Ooh, wait, you're letting too much art into these deals, right? We need to, <laughs> we need to, uh, to tighten it up a little bit, you know, methodology wise and, and so on. So that was, that was a little bit of uh, a shock that I, I worked on for quite some time. Um, but really at the time when I came on, it was uh, just absolutely a rocket ship of growth. So, so Mesosphere was uh, building a product called DCOS that was uh, on top of uh, Mesos, which is much like Kubernetes. So it's, it's an automation technology for distributed systems. And um, for the size of company that Mesosphere was, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit out there. So my mandate when I came on board uh, was really how quickly can I grow a global team? Yeah, fantastic. And a, and a similar mandate at D2IQ prior to your, your most recent role with Domino Data Labs. Yeah, that's right. Well, actually, so Day2IQ was Mesosphere. So, so uh, what sorry, ended yeah. up happening was, uh, yeah, so Mesosphere ended up um, moving technologies. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, like I had mentioned, the DCOS technology was built on top of Mesos, which was, you know, very, very widely adopted for, for microservice uh, automation orchestration. 
And then, of course, Google came and started making the Kubernetes community yeah. explode. And as Kubernetes got more uh, adoption, mm. we shifted the underlying technology over to Kubernetes. And at that point, the name Mesosphere, because it tied to Mesos, the technology itself didn't really make much sense. And so we, uh, we changed the name to uh, Day2IQ because ultimately what we're really doing is helping customers with their Day2 operational challenges. Um, so anyway, so that, that's how the company evolved. Yeah. So, sorry, Simon, go on. No, I, I was just going to say, obviously, coming from such a rigorous kind of playbook from a, from a sales perspective, was that, was that important for you to kind of really understand what you need to be successful as well in terms of, you know, being aligned to the right playbook? It goes back to your first playbook element, which is pre-sales and sales are, you, you know, you're part of that. And, and where it didn't match with your playbook, did, did you kind of feel that, you know, when you were there? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I think that this is, um, this can be a real challenge. Um, when, I mean, I, it probably applies to any department at different companies. When, when you're not aligned with a playbook, right, then you're going to run into all kinds of challenges along the way, right? And so um, I think that, that um, it manifests in poor ways too. Because really, um, especially when, when you're trying to push a playbook that's unnatural, okay? If, if there's one thing that people should read into any of these podcasts when they're listening to how this playbook works, I mean, obviously, there's a hiring profile that's all part of it. But when we start talking about the deal qualification and, and business value justification and whatever, that, those aspects of the playbook, um, I think that uh, it, it really... It's like, uh, if I think of it this way, it's like a golf swing, okay? The more unnatural it feels, the more it's actually going to work, okay? Which is, which is strange because it's, so it's not going to be intuitive. You're going to have to fight your instincts in order to do it, right? There's nothing harder for a salesperson to do than call out a deal, right? I mean, you spent forever. I mean, these are this new technology. I'm like, I'm not trying to knock anybody. I mean, they're out there prospecting and, and busting their hump. They're not getting a whole ton of leads from marketing. You know, they finally get some traction and, and people are talking to them and it really seems like, you know, there could be something there. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a lot for the salesperson. They do right? And, and a lot of this, uh, this playbook is really about spending your time doing the right things, right, at the right times. And so you'll have to make that unnatural decision. They, they just asked me for a POC and I haven't talked to the economic buyer. I haven't, you know, really figured out the pain or, or any kind of metrics as to how we could ever justify them spending a million dollars on this stuff. But they asked for the POC. They want to get the software installed. And I know the software is awesome. You know, what am I going to do? Tell them no. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's like, again, in the golf swing, that's adjusting your grip in a funny way. Well, go, you know, go to an overlap or go to a baseball swing or something <laughs> different like that. It just feels wrong. And so if you're going to do it, the only way you're going to do it is if you're aligned and you're thinking that this is going to work. And a lot of times that comes down to your coach, right? If I'm going to, you know, use, continue with the golf analogy, if you have a swing coach who is showing you, 
your improvements and is showing you, you know, when you're making these changes, it feels unnatural, but do 70 swings, then tomorrow do 70 more swings and tomorrow do. And the next thing you know, it starts feeling more and more natural. And the coach is really there and involved and convincing the person do this unnatural thing in order to get better. Um, same thing from the sales, sales methodology perspective. If you don't have the frontline managers of the AEs aligned with the methodology, if you don't have, you know, all the way up to the top, everybody, not just the top, you need the frontline manager, you need everybody involved because it's unnatural and everybody's going to gravitate towards the natural thing, right? And, and so, um, so I find that, that when you come in, like when I, when I would come in with a methodology like this and convince all my sales engineers, and of course, they're so drawn to process and they see this and they're like, wow, that makes sense. That makes so much sense. I don't want to be doing POCs that we don't get money out of and all this kind of stuff. This makes so much sense. And I see my role and how I can get these metrics and all these different things. They see it all. It makes sense to them. They want to do it. And then next thing you know, you have a frontline manager who says, but we're going to move forward with this POC, even though we haven't, you know, done any kind of proper qualification to say that this is the right thing to do at this stage. You end up with, um, you know, just, just this misalignment and conflict and the, there's kind of, you know, the, the sales engineers will, um, you know, really start to, to get, um, uh, I, I guess, lose their confidence, Right. And, uh, and so anyway, so I think, you know, regardless of methodology, obviously this is a very proven one why, why we're doing this, but, but regardless of methodology, everybody needs to be aligned. We need to be executing against the same playbook. And if that's not the case, um, you're, you're going to run into challenges. Hmm. Amazing. And for um, our viewers, James, maybe individuals earlier on in their pre-sales career or even individuals you know, touching on customer-facing roles who maybe want to, to really specialize in pre-sales. Aside from the playbook, what do you think are the key attributes or, or even key pieces of advice you would, you would give those individuals? Yeah, so, um, so one, I just want to evangelize that the role exists. <laughs> if anybody's watching as, you know, a developer, sysadmin, admin, you know, other technical role, I mean, even some of the folks in consulting as well, yeah. Um, you know, this role exists and this is what it's all about. It's about going out. It's about um, really uh, uh, identifying all the areas where you can add value to these amazing businesses that are just, you know, doing so well and have so much talent. And it's, it's, it's uh, extremely fulfilling from, from that perspective. But then also just, you know, from a selfish perspective, it, it's, um, you know, very lucrative, much more uh, a lot of times than uh, any engineering role could be as you're paid off of commissions and, and can really blow things out of the water. And uh, you become part of a team that gets a ton of visibility, right? I mean, you're talking with the VP of engineering, you're talking with the CEO, right? You're bringing the CEO into meetings with you, all this kind of stuff. You know, you're a engineer, even if you're a good engineer down in your little cube, you're not doing that, right? And, and so, it really gives you visibility within an organization. It makes you the hero. You go to sales club as soon as COVID's over, of course, but, uh, <laughs> but you know, with five-star resorts and, and all kinds of rewards along those, those lines as well. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, very exciting. But from, you know, a, a characteristics perspective, you have to, first of all, be extremely competitive, right? That's number one. But you also have to be able to manage stress. It is, you know, 
the main difference I find between, so we talk about like an engineer or, or a, like a sysadmin or somebody who's just, you know, got their headphones on in their cube and, and uh, uh, whether they could be a sales engineer, you know, d- depending on, on their character, uh, may, maybe, maybe not, right? Mm. Uh, but even when you look at somebody who's customer facing and technical, there are still differences, Right. So if you take somebody who's who's worked their career in professional services, for example, right, here's somebody who somebody who's not in the know may look at and say, well, there's a customer facing extremely technical person. Let's hire, you know, let's get them on as a sales engineer. That's that, mm-hmm. you know, why not? They can talk to customers and and uh, they can fix any technical problems that ever arise. Right. That's that's fantastic. The difference, though, is really in that ability to manage the pressure and the stress, right? So what, what I mean by that is during a sales cycle, nobody's friends. <laughs> I mean, obviously you get along well with the prospect and whatever else, but they haven't decided that you're gonna partner up together, right? There's always this little closed vest uh, type thing that's going on. There's competition in there. They're trying to drop bombs on you. There's uh, the pressure from the salespeople and, and everybody trying to make sure that, you know, did you get this POC installed? Why isn't it working? Are you talking to support? Are you getting this? You know, everything has to be re- look really simple and, and, and so on. And of course, you know, uh, in doing that, you're uh, really managing the stress and hiding all of the problems, you know, not, not deceiving anybody, but you get what I'm saying. Like you're, you're, you're trying to get through all of the challenges in a way that the customer is going to feel comfortable, right? Comfortable with your technology, comfortable with, with you and, and your team that you know what you're doing and so on. And that is stressful, right? When you take a, a professional services person, they're typically brought in, after the sale is complete and everybody actually is friends at that point, right? There's no competition in there. And yeah. really you've just decided you've got a hard task ahead of you. It's, it's, it is a tough job, right? And they're still going to run into a ton of challenges. But at that point, everybody has, has, you know, kind of shaken hands and said, we're going to build something and we'll build it. Let's build it together, right? We're going to hit challenges, but let's build this thing together and, and be one team. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, there's a certain demeanor, of person that goes into that role that uh, I have seen before, right? That I've, I've brought over to sales engineering and just absolutely like their heart exploded. <laughs> like they just, they couldn't handle it. They could not handle, yeah. you know, what they would normally do in, in two months or three months and, yeah. and get it just so perfect in production. They couldn't handle, well, what does that look like for a POC in two weeks? Yeah. You know, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be risky. It's going to be, you know, fingers crossed and all kinds of stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, so it, it really is. It's, it's a very particular personality, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, for those who, who it does work for, for me, it, it, it absolutely uh, changed my whole career path uh, and, and um, mm. my whole outlook on, on just working in general. Mm. I wasn't that guy who was going to be sitting in my cube writing, you know, groundbreaking algorithms. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic advice, I think. And um, one more kind of uh, bit of advice we'd, we'd love to ask you about is for those individuals, maybe with, um, you know, they've got that taste for pre-sales, they can tell they have the right attributes um, for them to scale their career as you have and, and some of the other um, Blade Logic pre-sales team have into much more senior roles now, mm-hmm. what should they be doing maybe on a daily basis or just in, in general, what, what kind of um, things should they be focusing on? Yeah. 
So, you know, I, I mentioned all of the, the different um, capabilities that I look for when I talk about the sales acumen, the uh, um, technical abilities and, and the leadership. I mean, a lot of those things are just fundamental. I mean, it's doing your, your sit-ups and push-ups, mm. right? So, so staying ahead of the technologies, keeping yourself, you know, as, uh, you know, uh, sharp as possible and always, always, always learning and yeah. take your ego. And this is tough for technical people to do. Take your ego and completely leave it, leave it at home. Do not yeah. bring it out because, you know, when you're out there selling, you're just, um, it's not about you. It's about the product, it's about the value, it's about the company, it's about the success of, of everybody involved, and it's not about you. You've got to leave that ego aside. It, you could be right. That's a bug in the product, and it shouldn't be there. Well, guess what? That doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? Your goal is to close the deal. Who cares if you're right or not? Okay. Yeah. You'll, you'll deal with that bug later, right? So I think that that's one thing. As far as you know, growing your, your career and, and advancing, I, I really... I'm a big fan of, um, there's two things. There's one, do the role that you want, not the role that you currently have, right? Mm -hmm. and, and absolutely everybody that I have promoted has fallen into that camp, right? They, they just, they will be coming to me proactively and saying, I know that at this level, at a principal SE level or at a, you know, because I've laid out their career roadmap with, with all of the different um, things that are expected at these different levels. And they'll ask, they'll say, I don't have any projects like X or Y as are described in this, you know, distinguished or principal SE role. Can you assign some to me? Mm. I, I want, you know, it's, and so, you know, this responsibility, it can't be given, it has to be taken. Okay. And so anybody who wants to advance their career, that's, that's the advice that I have is, is just straight up, look at what that advance, advancement means and ask, ask for those things and then you will advance, right? If you sit back and you just wait for your boss to, you know, hand you projects and different things to advance your career, it's likely not going to happen or certainly not um, as quickly, right? And then, uh, you know, lastly is... Um, you know, the always be learning thing applies to, to everything. Like you may think that, that I'm a sales engineer, so always be learning means I'm going to go out and get my whatever it is, Kubernetes certification, and I'll get my, you know, uh, uh, different networking certs and all this other kind of stuff. Well, you know, that is one aspect of it. But, you know, some of the best sales engineers that I've had, um, you know, mentoring under me, have asked questions like, you know, I've gone into a room where it's just been animosity from minute one. Why are you guys here? Your technology is crap and blah, 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 and whatever else. Yeah. And then left the room with everybody shaking hands and saying, wow, you know, let's, let's go. This is fantastic. Mm. Now, the, the, the sales engineer who's just always thinking about what they can learn is looking holistically and will ask, you know, I've had, uh, there's, there's one guy I'm thinking about in particular who asked me after a meeting just like that. He said, how did you do that? So hmm. I want to know how you did that. He said, I, you know, I was witnessing it all. We walked in the room. It was just awful. They all hated us. And when we left the room, everybody was shaking hands. That was not a coincidence. Yeah. You guided that conversation. You did, you know, and, and was asking for those soft skills, for that coaching, for that mentoring of the soft skills. So, so it's, it's about thinking holistically, like what do you need hmm. 
to be successful in your particular role. And it's not necessarily what you think it is. Mm. Fantastic. Great. So the final question we always ask is well, for the pre-sale series is what technology or area of innovation do you think is going to have the biggest impact on business in the next 10 years? Okay. <laughs> now I'm going to have a tough, tough time picking uh, just one. So you're just going to have to bear with me just a little bit here. But, um, but there, there are a few things, right, that, that are happening around the same time right now that I think are going to have longer, long-term impact. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of them is the new application architecture. Okay. So we're, we're talking, I'm talking about um, distributed systems, microservice architecture. Uh, it solves for so many things that didn't, were not solvable in the past, right? They just weren't. So horizontal scalability, 100% uptime, all these things, and the ability, which is really important to release and innovate faster, low risk, right? So I'm gonna just release this little thing and that thing and doing like 10 releases a day instead of twice a year. When you talk about what's going to advance things, it's that, that's like putting fuel on the fire. If you allow people to release 10 times a day versus twice a year, right? It's, it's just absolutely going to have a huge impact and, and everybody is moving in the direction because it, it just makes sense for all those reasons that I mentioned. So I think, you know, First and foremost is going to be that moving to distributed systems and, and that's well underway at this point. I think uh, nextly is, is going to be because when you look at it from a global perspective and especially when you bring kind of consumer into it, um, you know, infrastructure always, it, when infrastructure makes a leap forward, it takes a while for the software to catch up. But it is the thing that actually allowed for all this to happen in the first place, right? So there's no question that like 5G and, and the move, you know, to, to you know, just the, these, um, the, the ability to make connection just um, universal, right? Everything is connected. Uh, right now I have a, a thermometer in my aquarium that I thought when I was getting it, it said it was networked or whatever. So I thought, oh, maybe it's just local Wi-Fi or maybe it's, you know, Bluetooth or whatever the heck it is. No, it's actually posting to the cloud and I can actually see what temperature my aquarium is, you know, no matter where I am, right? (laughs) And that sounds like, you know, oh, a neat little gadget, but that's just going to be how things work. Like, it's just going to be, it's going to be fundamental to the operation of things, right, is, is just having this connectivity. And I think that, you know, obviously enabling the networks to do that, to handle that kind of bandwidth and, and send all that data, right, is um, absolutely, uh, uh, you know, huge. And then I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll throw in a, a shameless plug for, uh, for my new company that uh, I'm starting with at uh, Domino Data Labs. But uh, I really think that what this is going to drive is more innovation along the lines of data science, right? So when you start talking about things like AI and ML and how they plan, you're seeing it already, right? There, there are just a ton of companies that are using these types of technologies in areas like run your HR better with AI and ML technology. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, what? What does that have to do with HR, right? How, how, in, the, how in the world is that going to help me? But, but yet it, it's happening, right? And it, and it is working and it is showing, you know, a leap forward, right? In, in the types of things that can be achieved, even in uh, areas that have been existing forever, right? And, and uh, a leapfrog. So I think that, you know, the, the, 
the whole thing together, the ability to develop and release faster, the infrastructure allowing for the transfer of that kind of data, and then systems that are reliant on volumes of data in order to get smarter and better. I mean, it's just, uh, it's all coming together at the same time. And, uh, you know, it's exciting for the geeks out there. Yeah, amazing, James. Thanks a lot. Great insight there. So I suppose this is a good time for us to kind of do a bit of a summary on what we've heard today and what's been a, a truly fascinating um you know, session today. Um, I, I suppose I want to just start off by kind of um, dispelling some some misconceptions about what pre-sales people are like. You know, I'm sure lots of people are surprised to hear that pre-sales people play golf and they actually do like to go out and win. And I think that that's the thing that I've taken most from today's session is the fact that you are absolutely dedicated and maniacally focused on developing the right processes, behaviors, methodologies that enable you to win and not to go and waste your time doing things that are going to result to no wins. And even the way that you look at product development, if it's not going to help you win, then there's no reason to kind of push that, that level of innovation. So I, I suppose, you know, I think it's been absolutely fascinating. I just want to say a really big thank you for taking the time to, to speak with us today. It's truly an honor. And uh, thank you so much for, uh, for, for speaking with us today. Well, thank you guys so much for putting this whole series together. I mean, it's, uh, it's been really amazing for me to uh, go through some of the uh, videos that have been released to date and uh, kind of run through my past. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's um, really great stories uh, to be told and a lot of things that, uh, that people can learn from. And, and uh, I think that's important to, uh, to share that stuff. So I really appreciate you guys putting this on. Yeah, there's been so much valuable experience shared today as well. We, we really appreciate it, James. So thanks again.